and thanks for downloading UW Alumni Voices. Beyond the Big Four, a great, big, beautiful world. If the idea of going straight from study into a strictly defined job in a large company and the subsequent progression up the corporate ladder makes you uneasy, this discussion is for you. Our diverse alumni panel talk non-traditional career paths, both in Perth and around the world. Hello, everybody. Oh, look at that. That just commands silence. I love it. Um, th thank you all for coming out and joining the correct panel for today. Uh, you've all made a very good choice. You've definitely chose to surround yourself with four very impressive people. Uh, I don't know who the other panelists in the other panels are, but I don't think they're as good as these four. <laughs> I have no basis for that opinion, but, but that's it anyway. So we're here today to talk about uh, life beyond the big four. And we had a little bit of a pre-meet a week or two ago. And one funny thing that came up was that we all had a different idea of what the big four was. For some of us, it was the big four accounting firms. Uh, for another, it was the big four resource companies. Um, I worked in the university sector for a while, and then I'm like, oh, there's four big unis that you'd work at as well. So the big four, I don't want us to get too hung up on the number, but think of the big four as the, the beaten path. I think of it as when you go to a careers conference, these are the people that have bought the biggest pop-up tent, and they've got the pull-up banners, and everyone's wearing matching shirts, and uh, they want your CVs to put through an AI so that they can decide who to pick. Uh, we're here to talk about everything and anything else that isn't that. Um, we have four very clever people, all of whom are in very unconventional, interesting careers. Uh, you have their bios, so we, we won't sort of spend too long on introductions. But I'd like to ask a little provocative question. You're all in very interesting lines of work at the moment. If you encountered yourself when you were 21, what about 21-year-old you would be most surprised by what you're doing now? Um, and let, let's start right down the end with Mark, and then the, the, the buck can come back to me at the end. Um, 21, gosh. I, um, at 21, having just turned 50 this year, that's almost 30 years ago, so that's like pre-internet, so there was no Facebook. I have no record to go back on, on that. I... Uh, so you want, you want a bit of advice, what, what I would give my advice to myself now? I didn't catch the... What, what, what would surprise 21-year-old oh. you has just materialised from a portal and he looks at you, nearly 50, what most surprises 21-year-old Mark about where you've ended up? Look, 21-year-old Mark was, was working full-time, um, doing his honours dissertation in English literature and he looks at 50-year-old Mark and says, how are you running, um, doing an honours dissertation, and I talked about my honours dissertation over lunch, on the representation of the hermaphrodite in James Joyce's Ulysses. 50-year-old Mark is running the state's, uh, one of two national supercomputing centres um, and I'm managing a $70 million capital program to probably introduce the biggest computer in the southern hemisphere next year. Um, we'll be in Perth, just around the corner, and working, running this, the data and compute to support the Square Kilometre Array project, which is one of the world's biggest science projects. So there's uh, an interesting conversation between 21-year-old Mark and 50-year-old Mark, um, and uh, he might also say, why the heck would you have children and they become teenagers to 50-year-old Mark? <laughs> that's, probably, <laughs> that's probably another another conversation point altogether. 
Cool. Well, good on you for freeing up a Saturday, especially then. Uh, Zara, how about you? Um, I yeah, at 21, I was working maybe two part-time jobs and studying dentistry. But now I'm running a fintech company um, that's involved in micro donations for charities, and that's something that we've started here locally. I don't think I would have thought that at this age I might have um, kept coming back to UWA again and again to amass ridiculous amounts of post-nominal degrees but I think um, I think yeah my younger self would have definitely been quite surprised at um, the things that I learnt along the way yeah but yeah ne definitely not a tech person um, used to probably at 21 only use Microsoft Word I think consistently and that was about the extent of my tech knowledge so a lot's changed since then. Angie how about you? Um, when I was 21, I think I was full of energy and I was thinking I was going to go out into the world and do stuff. And if I went and said to myself, you're going to spend 11 years at university <laughs> after a um, double degree for five years, a four-year PhD and a two-year postdoc, I would have said, what? No way. But um, then I would have said to myself, but you end up going out into the world and doing stuff. So I would have said, that's okay. Um, 21 year old, 21 year old me was a law student and I'm now Director of Innovation and Strategy at Anglicare WA, a community services organisation and I think at that point, I don't think I would have been entirely surprised that this is where I ended up. Probably the long um, windy path to get there would have been more surprising um, and I also think at that stage I think I thought the big four was a whole lot more important than I do now. Yeah. Um, whatever, however you define that, that big four, it was important to me at that stage to you know, follow the well-trodden path and, and um, go for the, what looks good on the CV. And probably took me quite a long time to, to follow my passion and stop thinking about what looks good in, on the CV. So I like that. That's a great segue, that idea of following your passion, which we hear a lot about. And I, I think passion is often what causes these sort of uh, twists and turns in our career from the obvious place to the not so obvious place. Okay, I'll, I'll bounce that one back to you. Could you tell us how you made that decision? What, what was building up and what made you make that shift from the well-trodden path to what you're doing now? So I, I um, worked in a commercial law firm and then went and did an MBA and then worked at Boston Consulting Group, you know, pretty, pretty well trodden. Um, and then um, had a few other roles in strategy. Um, but at every point, at every decision point in my career, I considered a non-profit angle and always was, I think, guided to go, stick with the for-profit and, you know, because you can always go in that direction, but it's harder to move back. And it wasn't really till I was about 40 and went travelling with my three kids for nearly a year and had a bit of a think about this is the only life you've got that I, that I thought it's time to stop doing that and do wh what I think I'm passionate about which is finding something where the purpose is what gets me out of bed every every day and um, and that's been a fantastic thing so far I'm only a few years into that journey but looking back I think it fits it makes a whole lot more sense retrospectively than it did at the time you know at those various decision points. Great, yeah. Hi everything looks clear in hindsight, huh? Everything's obvious once it's completed. I I'd love to hear from Zara a bit on this because you, there's probably nothing more going off the beaten track than actually starting your own initiative because you're, by definition, creating something that hasn't existed yet. So how, how did you come to want to go from 
And I th to me, this is the one that I can make the least sense of, going from dentistry to wanting to start a fintech social enterprise. What was behind that for you? I think for me, the idea was what was behind it. And I really love what Kate was saying about finding your passion and your purpose. And I think in many ways, like uh, once I graduated from school, I kind of went again into this um, very predictable career path. So my family are all, you know, migrants and doctors and things like that. So I kind of ticked a box getting into dentistry and doing law. I, I always had an innate desire within me to help people and I've done that from a very young age. So like working in healthcare, trying to consider systems and processes was one of the motivators for me to do law and to study public health because I like to do massive public health interventions and I guess if you think about it from that point of view I was always searching for a way to really change human lives and you can do that at a very micro level with dentistry you can do it at a macro level with public health and then you can even go further with technology and that's what I saw and so I thought I've got this idea let's make it happen and um, I think we're very lucky in Perth, we don't realise, but there is a very exciting ecosystem out there and definitely UWA is a great place to help support you in finding those right paths and making those right connections. So yeah, it probably looks a little bit odd on paper, but to me, it all now makes sense. Yeah. I, I like that point and I think uh, I want to chat to Mark a bit about this, that idea of uh, ecosystems of support. So, and Mark, I think, from what I understand of your career, to, to the extent that Nart's mind understands supercomputing, which is not much, <laughs> um, you've always worked in these interesting kind of cross-sector situations. And when I think about going beyond the big four, uh, I think a lot about the fact that certainly I was very stuck in, you're either doing non-profit work for good or you're doing corporate work for money. And those are the two choices. But you've, it seems that like you've worked in this really interesting cross-sector situation. So could you tell us a bit about your work there and, and what opportunities in general are coming out of cross-sector collaborations? Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, I should say, I did have a gap year I worked in industry. So when I left high school, I had a year working as a commercial debt collector um, before I went to uh, university. And that, that was in 87 when we had the big crash. And uh, so it was an interesting sort of pre-motivation um, pre, uh, to, to go to university. Um, and then, but the, the door opened for me in, in a simple vacation work at university, working in the admission centre, TISC. And, uh, and that became um, an insight into, a, into what are the, these large enterprises that, that we have as universities. So at the time, the, the expansion of the university sector um, to what we see today was probably starting in the late 80s, early, early 90s. And uh, so I joined UWA in, a, in an administrative role in the early 90s. And, uh, and then by the end of that decade, I'd, I'd sort of progressed to business development, engagement, sort of translation opportunities and joined an industry research joint venture in the early 2000s. I did spend two years um, in the dental school working as a business manager as an aside, so <laughs> work in interesting places. Um, and I found myself in this sort of, I think where my lack of one specific technical skill, but my translation, engagement, business sort of perhaps in, in, a, in, a, in a less um, impressive way, my entrepreneurial skills and your impressive way of starting your own company, but being a bit of an entrepreneur inside, inside this sort of business was, was really well supported. 
And uh, I found myself in, in areas where I was able to work with um, amazing scientists, but finding my way to add value to their work to sort out you know, commercial opportunities, business opportunities, um, relationships with government. And I reflect back that that had its grounding in a, in a liberal arts, um, open, you know, inquiry-driven, good, good research skills, those sorts of things came to play. And I continued on my, my post-grad education throughout my, my studies. So I hadn't realised, I came to the university thinking it was sort of a student-centric business, but I hadn't realised that it's probably the third, you know, the sector we're in, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of research activity, commercial activity, um, international presence for, for the companies that spin out of universities, all these sorts of things. And, uh, and I guess my skill set and my career path, as, as crazy as it might seem, at the time it didn't seem like much of a path, but looking back it's become a bit, of a, a bit clearer over time, was, uh, was well supported. With a bit of left and right turns along the way, but they've ultimately ended up going in the right direction. One thing I'm hearing is the more our 21-year-old selves would listen, the more we'd go like, oh, yeah, I can see how that makes sense. That was there the whole time. Yeah. Um, and I like that point about having that those generalist capabilities and that we might get time to talk later about what kind of capabilities future-proof you against the future of work. But next I'd like to hear from Angie, because, Angie, you've almost got, like, you did 11 years at uni, so you came out of this with a PhD as a hyper-specialist. I think it was like machine learning and visual? Uh, computer vision, yeah. Computer vision. So what, what's been finding your niche been like when you've, you've come into the career world with this incredible specialisation? And were you thinking when you were doing it of how is this going to lead me towards employment or were you just chasing the shiny thing? Uh, I was definitely chasing the shiny thing. So um, I was all about the technology and what looked like bleeding edge technology at the time. Um, and then uh, when I looked around at all of the, um, the areas I could work in computer vision in Perth, there weren't that many. So I definitely had to broaden my horizon and just look at technical roles. Um, and then ended up in the area of mining and robotics, uh, which had has nothing to do with computer vision, uh, really. I mean, uh, not, not a whole lot of overlap there. Um, so in, in my career, I work with very large mining machinery that uh, we put sensors on and, and we look at how they move around and how we can control them from remote uh, operation centers, which is quite different to um, computer vision, which is teaching computers how to see. Um, so certainly my robots don't do any seeing now. So, you know, look, it was, it was a decision that I made based on having to have a job. But having said that, it was useful having a PhD. Uh, so if you consider I was the only propeller head in the company, what they called the propeller heads to start with. So the company had been around for 25 years making this large machinery. They saw the way the wind was blowing. Um, they saw that all of mining is moving off-site now so that people can look through um, CCTV at what's happening on mine sites. And they said, we've got to get ourselves some of these smart people. And so having a PhD certainly helps with that. I assembled a really good team together. And when I'm out on site and I'm talking to a supervisor for production, he doesn't care about the technology. He just wants to get rocks into that crusher as quickly as he can. And so he needs to know that he's got the best people on board providing him the technology. And it's not going to fail. It's not somebody who just mucked around. It or did a course in um, how to do programming, you know, they, they absolutely know their stuff. So, look, doing postgraduate is fantastic, I think, for, for getting your, your credentials in the workplace if you, if you want to go into industry afterwards. Cool. Uh, one thing that strikes me hearing everyone is there's this element of, like, purpose and impact seems to be an inextricable part 
of stepping away from the beaten path and, and finding your own kind of interests and your own career. Um, and Angie, you didn't talk about it, but I was reading that you've, you know, you've done some work setting up repair cafes and you've done some volunteering. And Mark, I know you're a huge advocate for um, diversity in, uh, in high-powered computing. So we've got a real, although this is the non-Big Four panel, I was surprised it was, it's also sort of a bit of an impact panel. So I'd just love to hear, and I'm going to open this up to anyone who wants to speak to it. I guess my question is, is there, is stepping away from the big four, the obvious choice, does that necessitate choosing purpose? And do you think it's, it's easier to find purpose when you step away from the kind of more obvious choices out there? I, I think um, stepping away from the big four lets you do things like I did and work for a family-owned company. And by doing that, you get to be a bigger cog in a smaller machine, and therefore you pick up a lot of skills. So, you know, as a scientist, I was asked to do business cases and uh, control our finances, do all the sales and all the marketing, which I had no idea how to do. So you do get quite well-rounded, I think, by, by being in perhaps a smaller company. I'm um, interested in the the idea of whether it's the the desire for purpose that pulls you away from the big four, or if if it's the other way around. You know, if you, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> whether those who have some purpose, you know, m move away from them. I'm, I'm sure that there are ways you can step away from the big four because you want to make a lot of money, so you start up a company and that's what it's about. So it doesn't necessarily have to be driven by that. But I I do think having been in a number of different big fours, I definitely felt like I was more likely to be able to find purpose outside that. Um, I mean, everyone in every job can find some purpose in what they do. Uh, depends how, how you define it. But it's sort of quite freeing to move outside the big four where you think, well, I'm just going to you know, do what works for me rather than feeling like I have to fit into one of these categories of careers that people have pre-designed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Mark? Just, just a quick one. It's a slight tangent on your question, though. But I, I've w I work with technical specialists, you know, deep expertise all the time. I mean, most people in universities, in a profession, you know, research, have PhDs and so on. They're the, they're the how experts, and I ask the why questions, and I've always been motivated by that, and that's how I, but that's how I do my job. Why, why we do what we do through research and education and, and, and the support of universities, and translate that into some sort of impact. And that's been fairly consistent throughout all my career, and uh, I guess sus sustain me. I'm sure we're hearing more and more of the big four, those major companies talk about impact, but it's, I've always felt it's been something that's been part of the, the sector that I've worked in um, all my career, and I've, I've enjoyed that as I look back on it. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think, yeah, there's some individual motivating factors about feeling fulfilled, but now I think also there's a historical change that we're experiencing. So perhaps in the past, you know, when we look at our parents' generation, people were quite content being specialists in one area because there were not that many options afforded to them otherwise to do change careers, career mobility, or even um, the likelihood that you would retain a job. But now I think as the world's evolving, technology's evolving, and also our own personal interests are evolving, um, we need to encourage every individual to reach their maximum potential, which will then breed societies that are also evolving as the world is changing. And so that is probably shifting the nature of what motivates us 
as people. Yeah, that's great. I, I think there's a real, I feel there's a real sense as well that we, you know, the world is facing a lot of urgent problems and I think some people are losing faith in the ability of large bureaucracies to respond to them. So hence us going out and creating something like a fintech startup because I don't know, why aren't Visa and MasterCard doing it? I'm going to have to do it, aren't I? So there's that sense of taking on that responsibility. Exactly. Uh, what I'd love, and I get the sense if you've come to this, you probably already have an inkling that maybe you'd like to break away from the mainstream. You've got like a little side project bubbling away or I love doing this, but who the hell's going to pay me how to do it? So I'd love to get a sense from the panel now as to like, how do you actually find this kind of work? You've got a little passion project bubbling away. You've got something that you blog about or you read about. How do you turn that from an idea into an income? Maybe let's, uh, let Kate, you were talking a bit about uh, in, in like an interview context and what you're looking for when people interview. Maybe we could use that as a jumping off point. Someone's come to Anglicare, they really want a job, they're passionate about the community sector. What influences your opinion there? Well, yeah, I guess, um, and, and I have lots of coffees with people who are trying to decide what they want to do next, and especially those who are leaving the mainstream in some way. And, um, and I feel like you kind of need to do, well, the high level answer to your question is talk to lots of people if, if you're trying to work out you know, how to do it. And ultimately, I think you want to be trying to combine different passions that you have in a way that's different to other people. But, but what I've found useful is, and I've done it myself and I've advised other people who've benefited from it, is you kind of do two rounds of coffees. The first round of coffees is tell me about your job, what do you love doing? which people are usually happy to talk about themselves for half an hour. So, and then you go away and write down the bits that sound interesting to you, you know, the bits that actually resonate with you. And then you start to get a picture of the, the sort of job you're interested in when you start pulling together all those different conversations. It then allows you to put together a picture of what you're looking, like, what you're looking at. So then when you meet with people, you can say, what I'm looking for is a role where I get to do X, Y, Z in a sector that's like ABC and you put, can put a bit more meaning around it. Because when people come to me and say, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore but I don't know what I want to do, it's really hard for that to be a meaningful conversation without a few clues. But if you, if you can do it in two stages, it means you're not doing the selling bit when you're still in the, in the information gathering part. Just one, one piece of advice I was given once that I just remembered is... Um, Look, like, sometimes it can be helpful if you're wondering, like, oh, what is my passion? Like, what's the thing that you're spending two hours a week on that's kind of weird that doesn't seem connected to anything else in your life? And sometimes it's right around those fringes, you know, the things that you Google when you can't get to sleep, that you'll be like, huh, maybe, yeah, maybe that, because we're not very good at entertaining our own passions, I think. We get a bit scared by them and think, oh, you know, there's no way, so you don't consider it. Marcus, I wonder if you had any other any reflections as an employer um, on on what you're looking for in in employees that might be coming to to look for a job. Y yes, look, and I, I, I enjoyed listening to Kate's comments there about that that process. And I my, my I think building on that, the um, we get presented with incredible qualifications, and uh, you'll see it in resumes and and CVs and so on. But what what you look for, I think, uh, less the qualifications, but more the qualities uh, of, of the applicant and trying to find ways of, of drawing that out in an application process. And it's, it's challenging if I'm working in a public sector environment. In, in, in fact, the process of actually doing that is, it needs to be filtered and managed and so on. So you're often relying on, on other means to actually um, gain information about 
you know, prospective you know, candidates. And uh, so the use of networks, the use of reference um, points and, and connecting over, over coffees and so on is, is, uh, is, is a really you know, useful um, medium. But uh, my shout out is also to those that, that perhaps uh, in, the, in the disciplines that they've studied at university where you may not see yourself as having a traditional title or qualification, that you still have incredible qualities that I think are increasingly in demand for employers. So I'm an arts graduate. I've got other I've got MBA and other qualifications, but essentially I'm, I'm still a, an arts graduate of, at my core running a technology business. But that technology business is increasingly challenged by very significant human issues, that, that the problems we're trying to solve are very human-centric. And finding the solutions needs expertise and translation and cross-disciplinary skills to work with the technology that's becoming increasingly automated and, and applying you know, machine learning and AI and all of those things. So, so those that come through with discipline strengths in science and, and, and the arts broadly are, I think, becoming more in demand in what might be seen as more traditional technology industries. And so being confident about that and you, the way you present that should open up doors for you into what might five, ten years ago have been the domain of just computer scientists or just engineers. There's, there's great opportunity across, across disciplines. So qualities, not, 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 not just qualifications, and sort of people, not just parchments, if you want just pithy little comments, uh, I think, and, and the degree is fantastic, I'm not dismissing the degree, but, but those other, other attributes are really what I think employers look for. All right, well this is being recorded, so you just got your sound bite for the, Thanks, Josh. For the podcast, <laughs> people not parchments, I love it. Uh, Angie, I'd love to hear from you as someone who has that, uh, is creating that intense technology. The flip side to that, those human skills, how do you go about cultivating them? Like in, in your own life, how do you go about cultivating those human skills and capabilities? Uh, my own or of the team? Uh, you or your team. Okay. For myself, um, it was finding outlets outside of work. Um, so at work, it is pretty much just nose to the computer the whole time. But um, certainly, and, and we, I think we talked a little bit at our pre-meeting about trying to find a way of putting your, your passion into your job and, and your values. And um, in my case, it didn't fit into the one job. Um, so I love technology, but I also love sustainability. So in my case, it was creating something outside the workplace. Um, so if you, if you can't put your passion into your job, um, in, in my case, it was starting the Repair Cafe movement in the state where we, uh, we get uh, skilled repairers to help people repair their stuff for free so it stays out of landfill and gets the repair culture into the community. So, yeah, I, I guess that was the outlet for me. And, and um, by doing something outside of work, there was that personal growth of, um, you know, working with people who are not paid. So that's a completely different thing to being able to tell someone what to do because they are below you in the food chain at work. Yeah, and just, um, I guess, learning how to lead a team and um, and deal with the media and all sorts of things. So that was my own personal growth. With my team, I certainly, you know, I, I saw them as, as not people who were there to carry out a job. They were there to grow. And, um, and you know, we had our own culture. They all had big roles to play. I, I certainly gave them all um, their own little domain within our department and, and some ownership. And I think that gave them all some leadership um, challenges of their own. Um, and, and I certainly think that that is a, a really worthwhile thing for, for any employer to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've got four people here whom, if they didn't find their employment experiences satisfying, would 
probably leave and start their own thing. Probably, um, I just want to ask Sarah one more question and then we'll open to the floor for any questions that you all have. Um, so Sarah, just around that theme of uh, trying to find passion in employment, with you and your fintech interest, did you have, like, was, did that start as a side project? Did that start as something you're doing in your free time? And, and is it now something you're doing full time? And how did, how did that kind of unfold for you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess a lot of people might be familiar with lean startup methodology and when you're trying to start any new project, you know, you ideate and design thinking and all of that. So I'm actually a mum of two young boys, so I had very real demands of needing to put food on the table as well. So it did initially begin with me working still as a dentist, um, doing a lot of non-for-profit work. So I'm still an active volunteer and that's something that I choose to do. So I know that, you know, volunteering once one day a week at a homeless shelter um, called St Pat's where we fundraise to build a dental clinic and now we treat homeless people there. Um, I started pro program managing that as a volunteer and then they still needed me to actually work but it's just, it's a real jig of your time based on what motivates you. And I think as the difference, which is the app, started to grow and we developed a team, I obviously for time reasons had to cut down on the nuts and bolts of dentistry. So it is very hard, I think, for anyone that's starting something new. You have to take a massive pay cut, but you're taking a huge risk on something that you love. So if it, if it pays off, then you're really, you're running with something that you've created and you get the joy that comes from something that you started and knowing that you're yeah, embedding culture and your values into a project that is entirely your own. So it's difficult from a financial point of view to take a risk like that. Um, but I think the reward is, yeah, doing something that's unique and that really, that really changes things. So that's what motivates me, yeah. I was really glad to hear you be upfront about the pay cut element because I think we we don't talk about that enough. That if you go and strike out on your own, there's often, uh, I mean, if you talk about if we were here being pro big for stability and income, are often two very good reasons to be there. And yeah, but uh, passion in exchange for psychic income is sometimes the trade. Uh, I'd like to open to the floor now. So if anybody has any questions. Um, of, of a specific member of the panel or of the panel in general. Uh, yes, take it away. Hi, sorry for jumping the gun. Uh, <laughs> thank you guys, uh, all of you, for your contributions. Um, really great to hear all of your stories and each of you have had such interesting careers, interesting lives, and obviously you've developed a lot of really interesting different skills, different from the norm, from the beaten track. My question, uh, we touched a little bit about enterprise skills, entrepreneurship, that kind of ability. Um, and traditional employees, working for traditional employees, and how that might have shaped your career a little bit further on as well. What are the challenges that you faced in communicating the value of what it is that you, the skill set that you have to either clients, customers, or future employers, and how have you overcome those sort of challenges there? Great, any volunteers? Yep. Sure, um, and I suppose my answer is about me, but also about the 
people I've, in, uh, I've interviewed for jobs, I think uh, th when I think I've managed to communicate that is when I'm excited about the problem. Like if, there's the, if a job, if I think I'm able to think about a job as a set of problems that I find fascinating to solve, then I think that th that gets communicated. A and same if I'm employing someone and, and rather than them coming in and going, yes, I've got the qualifications, and I will differentiate in my head between, no, that person wanted a job, so they're not, they're not for us. Whereas if someone comes in excited about the challenges and already starting to get into a, well, you know, how are we going to do this? And what's, what's the, how do you think about, they're already grappling and fascinated by the problems that I need them to solve. Then I think that's when you can pull on alternate, you know, interdisciplinary or different frameworks and, and show, show the benefit of, of approaching things from multiple different angles. I'll just offer as well, for me with clients, there's an element of like your, if you take a stand and think, I'm interviewing them as well, and, and there's an element of fit there. Like for me, if I'm working with a client and they don't understand the value of a, a f you know, these flexible capabilities, if they're just looking for some kind of out-of-the-box consulting solution, they can and probably should go anywhere else. Um, so the assumption is if they're talking to me and I'm talking to them that you know, we both like each other and there's value there, and if there's not, uh, you know, I'm not gonna worry about selling myself too much. Uh, so the question I have, because uh, I'm really um, interested, because uh, some of you guys are working um, how the technology is going to integrate in the future. And uh, um, I'm study physio, and then um, for me, I always sort of like to think like all the industry will be transformed um, in some sort of way. And so uh, from your perspective, like uh, when you look at how things can be improved in the industry that you are in. How are you normally trying to identify the problems and how do you know those problems can be solved um, not by the big like structural changes but more like by technology and something can easily be done. I don't know if that's a question, it's very so simple. Just to rephrase and you tell me if this makes sense. So is the idea as people that are working within individual sectors, how, how do we sort of understand and communicate how technology is impacting on our sector specifically? Yeah, because we, uh, like for me, I'm studying to be a physio, I'm not particularly educated on big data or say um, like AI or anything like that. So how do you know those technologies can be used to impact on your industries? If that's better. Yeah, that, that's great. And we've, oh, we've so definitely yeah. got a few people here who are very much in the application of technology to industry. So. I think Mark wants to go first. No, I was going to defer to an expert. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I guess um, my advice would be to keep your ear to the ground. So um, reading all of the, um, the tech websites uh, where they might um, apply, like crossover to your particular field. Um, also, um, you know, getting connected with um, the right groups via LinkedIn, you know, just watching their, their news feeds, read things like Slashdot or set up you know, Google alerts for um, for particular um, you know keywords that you're looking for, and and over time, I think no matter what industry you're in, you're going to start seeing that machine learning and the data analysis come into it, and then and then you'll you'll be ahead of the game, I think, in your understanding of how to use it, and how to get ahead uh, of the competition by using it. Yeah, and, and it is essentially where I work now with the Pawsey Centre. The supercomputing facility is 
supporting what's a general trend in the change of science. So science historically has been run an experiment, generate some data, check that data, make some conclusions, run another experiment. Uh, the ability through this sensing of, 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 uh, of equipment and uh, increased sort of data uh, resources is meaning that we're actually using different technologies to sort of invert that and run science from the data. And so it's changing the way research is done and, and so there's a lot of effort in um, skilling um, researchers and new jobs are being created that I think are, are very positive for those that have a perhaps a discipline expertise but are open to looking at opportunities to work in industry with a with a broad um, with a broad outlook that you, you take some some expertise and apply it in a in a in a broader sense so um, I think it's a positive thing it's it seems to be moving very quickly and in Western Australia particularly with uh, remote operations and some of our uh, traditional sort of big four industry levers, we're actually levering a lot of change um, both nationally and internationally, which could position graduates from this region to be to be very competitive in the in the market. So, I think endorse your points about how to how to get in, uh, be aware, but also to to start reaching out to uh, to companies and and uh, and industries that I, I think are looking to employ. Looking to th there's a shortage of people who've got this this outlook about looking towards the the opportunity and the and the way the technology is is transforming. In, you know, healthcare um, and resources sector and e education—it's—it's it's really, um, it's really quite significant. So, uh, another question from the audience. Hi, um, I think a few of you mentioned volunteering work outside of work. So my question is, how did you guys find these uh, exciting volunteering opportunities? Because I was looking at some uh, volunteering like job. Um, website, for example, WA Volunteering, but the opportunities are very limited there. So just wondering, is there any other channel or better opportunities to find this kind of yeah, volunteering work? Thanks. Um, there, there's, um, I think, a branch of seek.com.au that is just for volunteering. So it's volunteering.com.au or volunteers or something like that. Um, so just have a look for that. Also, there's ethical jobs com.au, I think, if you're into sort of animal stuff or sustainability or whatever. Um, and they do have paid jobs, but they also have uh, volunteer jobs as well. So that's another way to do it. Um, or if there's a particular area that you're interested in, um, having a search for Facebook groups, I think, that, um, that work in those areas. Or, or visiting festivals, um, like, I, I, what, what was your area that you're looking to volunteer in? Is there a particular one? Um, like project management or construction. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if you could just do a search to look for Facebook groups that might sort of need people like that or just group together people who are like-minded like that. I think once you start doing a, a bit of a Google search on a couple of sites that I mentioned there, a few more will come up and you could find something that suits you. Yeah. Thank you. It, just, it, might, it might also be rephrasing what you think of volunteering if it, it could potentially become an internship opportunity if you think of a project uh, at a major company, they're often looking for ways to bring to bring fresh ideas and, and people in through through those sorts of programs. So there's many aspects to volunteering. I think so. Waving in front of you. I, I would also say um, 
don't expect to find the perfect volunteering role up front. Like, uh, um, you can go and do something for a while and decide it's not quite for you, but you might meet some people through it who then can connect you to other opportunities and also they see you. I mean, as an organisation that has a lot of volunteers coming in, the value of volunteers is variable. You know, sometimes managing the volunteers requires more resources than the benefit that the organisation gets out of it. Um, and so th there are, you know, if you go in at that level and learn about an organisation or something that you're passionate about, there'll be um, th there'll be tangential opportunities that come out of it. So follow your passion, find something that you care about, do something that's not quite right to start with and see where it takes you. I'll, I'll add to that as well. I don't know if you've had anything to do with the Guild Volunteering Hub here at UWA. They're another really good resource down at the Guild. I, th I think they're still open, even though it's um, out of semester time. I uh, And, and I, I used to run the Guild Volunteer Hub, so it's breaking it. Partly a bit of casual nepotism. Um, but I, I think of it, I've been thinking of it lately in terms of not volunteering, like who can I serve, but in terms of associational life. And I think, and this crosses over with the networking thing, like what is a group or a community of people to whom I can belong and to whom I share interests with? Uh, and then what do they need? And then there's a real reciprocity in it because you are, you are part of a group of people and you care about the mission, but you care about the people as well. Uh, and often these these groups, you know, they're not they're not advertising for volunteers because they're just groups of people that get together around some kind of shared interest. So, for me, a big part of it for me is um, I do a lot of improvised theatre. So I, I do a lot of um, performance, and we, you know, we get together. But when we get together, it's also like, okay, well, you know, we need someone to come a little bit early to set up the stage, and we need someone has to do door, and do you want to learn to do tech this time? And I think particularly since your interest is project management, um, any associational group is going to have some kind of project, something that they need done. And I'll say someone who works with arts people, we need someone who like knows how to use Trello and hold people accountable and, and be responsible for getting things done. And I think those when it's part of your associational life, when it's part of the community of people that matter to you, you're much more likely to stick around. The quality of the volunteering is likely to be a lot higher. So I think there's a lot of value in looking. Again, it's going off the beaten track. Like going to Volunteering WA, that's your equivalent of going to the big four. They're the people that have paid volunteer managers. They have roles. They know what they want. But the best opportunities come from associational life, from churches, clubs, groups, there's probably a group that you already belong to that could use your skills and just more commitment of your time. That's my view. I'd just like to add to that. I reckon being generous with your time to the problems that you think are worth solving pays back big time. And when I look back on my career, the connections I made through things that at the time, even sometimes I think, what am I doing this for? It's taking up all this time. What eventually something comes around and, and the, you, you join the dots. So if you care about solving a problem, it'll turn into something that's good, good for you as well in the end. Uh, another, another question. Well, yeah. I might I might pop in yep. because Mark is really keen to talk about his ice hockey puck that no one seems to uh, want to ask him about. So, can you share the story there, Mark, and why you want to share is. it? That's you wonder what this was. You couldn't I see thought that was here. like so you could mount your iPad on the car or something. No, no, it's to remind me of it. it when we, if we were to ask one bit of advice, and, and I was going to tell my ice hockey puck story, so. 
a game day puck from uh, National Hockey League. Uh, I went on a business trip to Washington a couple of years ago and uh, had a chance to, um, to go to a game, my first ever game. And j midway through the game, the ice, the game puck came over the uh, fence, wheel high, duck, and it landed at my feet and I got to keep the, keep the puck. And uh, so it, it's, I've used it a couple of times when I've spoken to people because I said sometimes you're in the right place at the right time. So as a, as a career metaphor, opportunities can come up and you can be in the right place at the right time. You might not realise that, but being willingness to, uh, to take them is, is, is one. But the other story is about the greatest ever hockey player is regarded as Wayne Gretzky. In men's ice hockey, it's, uh, it's Wayne Gretzky. He wasn't the, the biggest or the fastest, but he was seen as the, the best ever player. And he had two bits of advice. And one of his bits of advice was uh, that um, you don't score any goals if you don't take a shot. So, I mean, as a career sort of, I've taken a few jobs where I thought, I don't know if I can do this job but I'll have a crack at it. Um, what do I know about oil and gas? Um, but I can run an oil and gas research joint venture? Okay, I can do that. Oh, we're gonna go and meet Chevron in San Ramon in four weeks after starting the job. And yeah, bite off more than you can chew and chew really fast and take a shot. And the other thing was a bit about career strategy and, and, and there's a quote from the Gretzky that talks about how did he score so many times? Why was he so good? And he didn't actually chase the puck. He actually he said, he, I skate to where the puck's going to be. So there's this sense of you actually thinking about, I've always thought about not my next job, what I'm going to do next week, but perhaps what's going to happen in four or five years. And maybe with things moving so quickly, it might be one or two years now, but I've always thought in sort of four or five year blocks. I've had a, I've had a, a general view about what that next thing might be for me and be motivated towards that and done what I've done. So. That's my, uh, my hockey puck story. I love that. That's space invaders logic. You shoot at where they're going to be, not where they are. Uh, well, <laughs> um, you've probably seen space invaders in a museum, have you? Hey, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually much older than I look. Um, everyone's like, oh, what an impressive, successful young man. I'm like, no, it's actually, I've had an age-appropriate level of success. <laughs> um, I think that that's a great segue, though. What I'd love to hear from the rest of the panellists is um, one story or one piece of advice that you'd like to, to share with everyone today that they can, they can take home with them. I think probably following on from what Mark was saying, um, I can only speak personally, but I, my biggest thing that I kind of choose to live by uh, mantra is if it's within my power to help someone, I'll do it. And also, I just say yes. So sometimes I put my hand up for like too many things, but I've never ever doubted that all those things lead to either more knowledge, more education, more understanding. You know, sometimes like our knowledge is in silos with a lot of established organisations, but really I feel like a lot of the knowledge is at the fringes where different different systems meet others and that's by, by being involved with lots of things, staying um, up to date with events and news, um, and things that might affect your own industry or the things that you're passionate about. And just saying yes to every opportunity that comes your way because I do believe that it will lead you down the right path. And um, I guess off the back of both of those comments, so while coming off the beaten track is a really rewarding thing to do, uh, my piece of advice would be from day one, just always operate with integrity right from the beginning. And it sounds obvious, but um, what I'm trying to say is you don't want to ever be watching your back. You don't want to go into a new area and pretend that you know everything about it. So, I mean, you don't have to go in and say, I know nothing about this, you know. Like, there is certainly um, a balance between fake it till you make it and 
just knowing what your limits are and not pretending to be something that you're not because you don't want to go through your career watching your back worried that people will find out your secret that you actually don't belong there or anything like that so from day one operate with integrity and then you'll be comfortable I think all the way through and I would add be curious and brave and generous with your time on the things that you that you think are important and don't think too hard about whether the do dots are going to join up at some point but I think if you if you can be curious about the things that interest you brave about having a go even if it feels a bit awkward at the time generous with your time if there is something that you can do to to help someone it'll it comes together um, I'll I'll share a quick story that I'll discover halfway through if I'm talking sense or not. Uh, so I, I recently decided to go vegetarian. I, I eventually would like to be vegan. Currently, I'm just vegetarian. And, um, you know, uh, being a man in his 30s, I do a lot of meal prep. So I had a whole bunch of, like, frozen chicken meals in the freezer. And when I went vegetarian, I'm like, well, you know, I've already made them. So I'll, I'll finish them off over time. I don't want anything to go to waste. I, you know, not eating this chicken is not going to bring this animal back to life. So I had about eight. I think in the freezer and I think I had four and by the fourth I have now reached a point where actually I f I'm starting to understand veganism and I now find meat disgusting and I'm like I couldn't I couldn't eat it it's so wrong it's always been wrong I've never seen it until now and I, I think for me it illustrated something that I think I think it's a counterintuitive insight, but I think it's a correct one, which is sometimes your beliefs follow your behavior, not the other way around. We're used to thinking that you have a belief system and that affects what you do, but quite often what you do can affect your belief system. So if you're in a career situation where you're arguing with yourself about, oh, is this me? Do I really want this? Am I going to be able to make this sacrifice? Blah, 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 blah. Just do it and then figure out. And probably when you do it, you'll rationalize that it was the thing that you wanted to do all along anyway. Um, I think career shifts are a lot like breakups. Nobody breaks up with their partner too soon. You always break up and go, oh, God, why didn't I do that a year ago, you know? So um, buy the ticket, take the ride. That's my advice. Um, so that's, that's my um, social reading. So I'd just like you all to put your hands together, give a warm round of applause to our panel.